the sandwich ends up in my suit pocket. And then what happens is the sandwich starts leaching out. So I had this, 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 this sandwich with all the mayonnaise, well, it starts leaching out of my suit. Hi, you're listening to That Really Happened, Unbelievable Real Estate Stories. I'm your host, Ellie Perlman. If you're a real estate investor, this is the podcast for you. Our guest speakers will bring you amazing, intriguing, and unbelievable stories about real estate investing. The stories will be an honest and transparent account about what it actually means to invest in real estate. You'll hear stories that investors don't usually share. Stories about hardships, breaking points, painful truths, and surprising realizations. Sometimes there's a happy ending, and sometimes the story ends very differently than you would expect. So let's get the show started. Hello and welcome to That Really Happened, Unbelievable Real Estate Stories. Today we're talking with Frank Rolf, and he has an amazing story about what it takes to get a deal. Frank saw a property he wanted to buy and was determined to do whatever it takes to get the deal done, even if that means risking being poisoned. Hello and welcome to That Really Happened, Unbelievable Real Estate Stories. Today we have a special guest on the show, Frank Rolf. Frank is the leader of mobile home parks and is currently ranked as the fifth largest mobile home park owner in the U.S. Frank has been investing in real estate for almost two decades now. He has owned and operated hundreds of mobile home parks, and today he owns over 250 communities across 25 states. Among the books that Frank wrote on mobile home parks, you can find an an insider guide to buying and selling used mobile homes and mobile home park investing. Frank also runs a bootcamp on mobile home investing, where he trained hundreds of investors on how to buy and operate mobile home parks. Frank lives in a small town in Missouri with his wife and daughter, and he holds an AB in economics from Stanford University. Hey, Frank, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks very much for having me. Of course, it's totally my pleasure. And uh, Frank and I had a little conversation before we started uh, recording the podcast. I actually met Frank a year ago in one of the uh, real estate events in Denver. And he has so many interesting and fascinating stories, as you can probably imagine when you're in the mobile home park uh, business, there's a lot, a lot is going on all the time. Yeah. Yes. It's uh, it, there, there's, there's no shortage of things going on in the mobile home park space every day of the week. Yeah. I, I can only imagine. Um, so Frank, can you tell us a little bit about, about you and, and uh, you know, what you do and what you're maybe involved in these days? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, I started with just one mobile home park back in 1996 and then I, joined forces with my partner, Dave Reynolds, in 2010. And so we built our entire portfolio park by park, brick by brick, uh, no, no large acquisitions. It's just literally been one park at a time. So everything's been kind of grown organically. And since it's been grown organically over time, both Dave and I have done just about every role in the company. So we've served as everything from a park manager. Uh, I've officed out of parks for a decade. Dave actually lived in his early parks when he bought them. We've been, uh, you know, in charge of utility conversions from private utilities to city services. We've rehabbed homes. We've done it all. So we have a pretty wide range of knowledge. So what I do today is, you know, we've got uh, about 300 mobile home parks. We have about 750 employees. And I try and, uh, you know, jump in there wherever I see something 
lagging or failing to try and uh, and prop it up and get it in the right thing again. So my day is very varied. I mean, some days I'll have phone calls all day, and then sometimes I'll be on the road for a week at a time. So I just pretty much go wherever the problems are. So that's kind of what I do. I'm kind of, it's kind of like we're herding cattle, and I pretty much chase after the cows that got off the, the, the beaten path and then get them back over. So that's kind of what I do. Interesting. And with everything that is going on with, with your investments, um, with, uh, with mobile home parks, how do you keep from not burning out so fast? I mean, there's, it's, it's, uh, I can only imagine that it's real estate investing on steroids. There's stuff going on all the time, and it can be challenging even for a much more, um, you know, for multifamily or office space. I, I believe that that's a lot more comfortable to deal with sometimes, and there's not a lot going on all the time. So how do you keep from, from burning out? How do you keep the energy going? How do you deal with that, the day-to-day um, operations? Sure. Well, you know, the first thing you got to have in operating anything is you have to have a structure. I mean, you can't have it where every resident, every manager is calling you every five minutes all day and night. So you have to kind of have a hierarchy of how that works. So we try and have our, our managers in the field, which are called community managers, and, and we have a code name for them, which is CM. Our CMs are the first line of attack. So the resident goes to the CM uh, with their problem initially. The resident does not go to me or anybody else. So the CM kind of serves as gatekeeper. Now, at the same time, toward against that, that on-site manager going bad, you have to have a, a backdoor to allow people in times of trouble to get somebody beyond them. So we also have a helpline, which people can call or email in to, uh, to contact us. And uh, th- that's, uh, that's a very important thing you also have to have because it's, uh, it's required, if you want to maintain good customer service, to have people uh, be able to reach others and say, well, gosh, my community manager is not addressing my problem or, or, or that type of thing. And so then what happens is, so the community manager then uh, talks to uh, the next level up from them. Now, in the early days, it was just Dave and I. Today, we have another layer of folks that are between community manager and, and us. But it, it's all about the structure. You have to have systems and you have to have structure. So we have every, we've tried to systematize everything from the collections to property condition, to occupancy. And it's no different than if you look at how McDonald's works, right? You have the McDonald's and they've systematized everything from making fries, chicken nuggets, comes in prepackaged bags. It's got the fat fryer at a certain temperature and the timer goes off when the the fries have been cooked adequately. So that's, that's the first level of what you have going on. And then at the same time, you've got, you know, the, the, the manager of the McDonald's and then you have the franchisee that the manager goes to, but like, you know, you would not have the guy cooking the French fries thinking that maybe, uh, you know, the, the bag was short three fries calling the franchisee at home uh, at 11 p.m. saying, hey, I think the bag was short three fries, right? right? So that's what right. drives you crazy is that lack of structure. And in a mobile home park, it's particularly bad because a lot of our residents are truly unstructured. So, you know, in apartments or condominiums, people are pretty much used to how the system works and they obey the system because they grew up in a system and most of them went to school, went to college and have normal jobs. But in mobile home parks, what happens is you sometimes have people who are outside the system because they've never agreed to be in the system 
So you have those people who are kind of like outlaws, and then you also have people who just don't, they don't get it on how systems work. And that's, and that's why they often don't get the really good jobs and other issues. They just, they can't work within systems. So what will happen in a mobile home park uh, is that the residents, if they, if they have access to your number or if they feel like they can gain benefit from it, they try and use the system to the best they can. We keep our sanity by having a uh, by having those structures, those systems, and following those. And then the other way that we do it is you just kind of have to like what you you do. So I'm I'm a workaholic. Dave's a workaholic. I have no desire to ever retire. I get depressed on Saturday and Sunday because things are closed. <laughs> um, and so that helped enormously. So you know whether it's mobile home parks or apartments or whatever anyone wants to do, you have to actually like doing it. I think that's. If you don't like what you do, you always get burned out. Oh, yeah. And, and um, but that's, that's, that, that's pretty much how we do it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can totally relate to that. Um, especially when you own your own business, it's a lot harder than being on you know, a W 2. And you have to love what you do, there's no way around it. And if you don't, your life is going to be so, so miserable. So I, I totally yep. get it. All right. Great. So, why don't we just uh, dive into the story that you want to share with our listeners today? Sure. Uh, the story I would share, which is a, uh, a story that I think holds true, whether it's mobile home parks or any form of real estate. It's a story from uh, early on in my career. You know, I owned, uh, I think I was on part number three at this point. I bought a mobile home park out uh, in East Texas and I bought, it, I bought it at a good price and it was going fine. And I still had some capital left, left over and there was a park just down the street. And when I say just down the street, I don't mean a hundred yards, but it was, you know, you could walk it, but it was cl- close enough that I felt that I could manage both of those properties with the same manager, and that I could market them both together. And so I thought it was hugely efficient if I could just buy that other park. Because in the world of mobile home parks, when you have a hundred lots, your assets more valuable than under a hundred lots. And I had bought a 52 spacer and this guy had a 73 spacer. So I thought this is this would be the perfect deal. It was very underutilized. Didn't even have a sign out front. His occupancy was decent. So I thought maybe I could buy that park. So I called that guy up, and he was a Korean War veteran. So he was definitely a greatest generation kind of guy, older guy, lived by himself in a little white house next to the park, and he built the park himself. And so I called him up and said, hey, I bought the park down the street. And would you have any interest in selling your park? And he said, no. So no, no reason, just no. Okay. Mm. So then I would call him back periodically. And I don't, he would always just say no. He got a little more talkative over time, but not much beyond no. And so I thought, I'm not getting anywhere doing it this way. So maybe I should change up my sales pitch. So the next time I called him, I said, what would you think about going out to lunch and just talking about the mobile home parks in that town and where things are going and stuff like that, just like owner to owner. He's like, uh, okay, I'll do that. Mm-hmm. So I thought, okay, I got my foot in the door. So I drive over to his house and we're going to go out to lunch. So when I get there, uh, I'm thinking we're going to jump in my car and, uh, and go off to some restaurant. But instead he tells me he has already made lunch for me. So that he threw made, me off. And he the made thing, lunch I for you. Knew, knew what I walked he he made lunch. He didn't, mm-hmm. this guy apparently didn't like going out. So um, so I'm like, okay, well, he'll go to his in his house, and the first thing I noticed is he has no air conditioning. 
because wow. you know he, he's an older guy who apparently likes it hot. I guess because he grew up without air conditioning, as most people did of that era. So he just never he never picked up on the concept. So in Texas, I'm wow. I'm worried. Yeah, yeah, in Texas it's 100 degrees out, and I'm worried it's sued. So this isn't really working for me at all. So I go in the guy's living room, and I'm like, I just start sweating like crazy. Um, and you know, I'm really, really, really not enjoying myself at all. And then he says, uh, well, let's, let me get out lunch. And, uh, so I'm like, okay. And what he brings is a, uh, a, a bologna sandwich. So it's basically bread, bologna, mayonnaise, chips, and water with no ice. Wow. So I'm like, okay. Okay. So I remember enough from uh, high school biology to know that mayonnaise, which is not refrigerated, um, can poison you. So, so far, all I'm out is I'm hot, sweaty, my suit's ruined, my shirt's ruined, but the last thing I wanted to do was get food poisoning. So when he gives me the sandwich, since he has no AC and the water has no ice, I'm figuring he also does not believe in refrigeration. And lo and behold, I'm correct. So the bologna is hot, and the mayonnaise is hot. Wait, wait, wait. And I know he that's had, a toxic combination. He had no fridge in his apartment. No, no. This is this is a house, a little frame in, house. In, in his house. In. Sorry. Wow. Since the fifties, so almost wow. a half a century, he does not believe in any modern conveniences. How old was so he? So I'm like, uh, he well, he would have been. I'm, I'm assuming he was born in probably the late twenties to the thirties. So at that time, he would have been 70-ish. And um, so I was like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do here? Because I know that if I don't eat the sandwich, I'm screwed. He'll be highly offended. So I decide, you know what? Uh, I don't want to offend the guy. So I pretend to eat the sandwich. So what I do is he's engaged in conversation whenever he's not looking at me. Or looking down, or whatever. I, I pull off a thumb, a thumb-sized thing of sandwich, and I put it in the pocket of my suit. <laughs> and I keep repeating that over and over. So I do, I do eat the chips. I figure the chips are okay. I do drink the water, even though I'm a little worried on it. But the sandwich ends up in my suit pocket, and then what happens is the sandwich starts leaching out. Oh. So I had this 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 sandwich with all the mayonnaise. Well, it starts leaching out out of my suit. So I'm just dying, and the whole time, I just want to get up and say I can't handle this anymore. I gotta go. Jump in my nice car, turn the air conditioning on full blast, and go to Taco Bell or something. So that's what I want to be doing. But nevertheless, I I just sit there and sit there, and he talks about his whole life, how you know his his childhood. Uh, building the mobile home park, wife leaving him, daughter. I mean, it just, it just goes on endlessly. I'm probably the first person who's visited this guy in forever. And um, so he talks and talks and talks for hours. So this goes on until, I don't know, three in the afternoon or something. And I haven't said anything. Wow. He's just endlessly talking. So then he kind of rose out of stuff to say. And he says, you know what? I kind of like you. I'll tell you what I will do. I will go ahead and sell you the park. And he throws out his price. 
and he tells me, and I know banking's hard. I don't like banks. I don't like bankers. So I'll just go, I'll even carry the paper on it. So he just lays the whole deal out for me with no discussion. Just here's my price. Here's the terms. Here's the down. Here's the whole deal. And that was, that was it. And I said, okay, sounds good to me. Okay. Well then that's what we're doing. And you know, you just get it written up and whatever. So the whole moral of the story is what had really happened there, how the guy went from no so I'll sell you the park. He, number one, he obviously had a hankering to sell the park because he was getting really old. But the other part was, was the bonding process. Since I sat there and listened to him and didn't interrupt him and didn't say, oh my God, I'm hot or man, I hate your sandwich or whatever. He just decided, okay, you're a pretty good guy. I'll sell you something. So, you know, what, what I learned from that or the moral of the story is that, you know, a lot of the best deals in real estate all come from bonding. And bonding really is just right. the fact that particularly older sellers see more in life than just money, right? So a lot of a lot of people think that when it comes to selling real estate, that the seller is always going after the best offer, is always searching the bigger, better deal. So if you offer X, and the next guy offers X plus thousand dollars, that the other guy wins, and that's not the case. That's the wrong way to pursue buying. You you want to be more than just money. And when you bond with people, then it's much harder to unseat you with a higher offer. And then additionally, sometimes if they like you a lot, they'll go with you even though you're far less than the other person because they just don't care about the money. And another another lesson learned from that is, you know, in other forms of real estate where people buy stuff and have debt on it, a little bit of money is a huge part of their return. So like if you bought an apartment complex for a million dollars and you went to sell it for a million too. So you're only going to get $200,000 more than what you paid for it. And I try and get you to drop the price by a hundred thousand. Well, that halves your return, mm-hmm. right? right? But if you have no debt and I, and I go from a million two or a million one down to a million, you still get a million. So when you're dealing with, with a lot of older sellers who own the properties free and clear and are often, frankly, lonely and bored, the best thing you can do as a buyer is to bond with them. And by bonding, bonding means you don't have to do it in person. It can also be by phone. You basically just listen to them. And my, my favorite bonding question to the seller is, so how did you come to own the mobile home park? That, that answer can take hours. And, um, but bonding is really important. So when people ask me all the time, because you know, Dave and I have done together about 12 zero down deals. So basically the seller financed with no money down and you say, well, where'd those come from? Was it your amazing negotiating skills? No, not at all. We do, you can't negotiate somebody into zero down. That doesn't work. It's all from bonding. So the, like the bet, like the most powerful thing you can do if you're trying to buy real estate, whether you're starting out or have done it for your whole life is, is to really work the bonding. And, it, and it's not only the seller. Sometimes you can also bond with the broker. Right. Yep. So if the broker yep. likes you more than the other person, he's going to give you first shot at the deal. He might even convince the seller to go with you, even though the other guy offers more money because he'll tell the seller, no, he's a better buyer. He'll really close. So, you, you know, in, a, in, a, in an America today where people don't think much about relationships, because we've all gotten so impersonal with emails and shopping online and like there's not even clerks in stores anymore. I think everyone, particularly millennials and people don't don't understand the power 
of bonding and that human relationship side to business. Cause that's how a lot of people conduct their final decisions is not just money, but it's also like liking people. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. And I think that you, you touch on a very crucial point here that building relationships in real estate is, I wouldn't say it's everything, but it's so important. And um, I'm curious to know when it comes to mobile, uh, to mobile home park owners, um, do you usually find the deals through directly um, through the, the, the sellers to the owners, or do you go through a broker? Because in that case, um, when, when you go through broker and that happens uh, with multifamily and office for the most part, it's, could be, it could be a little hard to bond directly with the seller unless you're in, in the best and final and then you have the seller call, but that's very late in the game. What can someone do today if there's a broker in the middle? Um, how can they bond with the, with the owner directly? Sure. You know, about half the deals we buy, and for the last several years, we've been the biggest buyer of parks in the U.S., half of the deals come from brokers and about the other half come through us cold calling and doing direct mail. So, uh, mm-hmm. so brokers are super important because without the brokers, we would only be half as big as we are. Um, the, what happens on the broker side is sometimes you're better off not bonding with the seller because the broker's already bonded with the seller. Right. When the broker gets a listing, there were other brokers and that seller bonded with that broker for some reason. Typically, he liked that broker. Sometimes that broker promised he'd get more money than the other guys. But normally they all have about the same price. So normally he's got the in. He's the guy out of the hundred or so mobile home park brokers in America. That's the guy the seller likes the best. Now, here's the problem. If you go to the seller, there's no guarantee that he'll like you at all. All you know is he likes that guy because he lists his property with him. Interesting. What you have to do is you have to work through the broker. Because if you really think about it, the broker, and not to offend anyone in the brokerage community, but the broker really is always the agent of the buyer. Because the buyer is what gives the seller the money to pay the broker. So what we found is if 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 the broker's got a listing that you're interested in, and you say to the broker, Okay, I know the guy's asking $700,000, but you and I both know that's too much because based on the numbers that the bank will do, that's 100 too high. Mm-hmm. So wh- how much do you think it'll take off? The broker, realizing you're 100% correct, realizing if it doesn't sell, he doesn't get paid, realizing that you can't get around the banking community, he will say, you're exactly right. Uh, and so I think I can sell him at... 710. So why don't you make your offer for 710? And I think I can get him to sign it. Or the broker will say to you, well, I agree with you, but this guy loves to negotiate. So if you really want it for seven, you better come in lower than seven. So you send in 650 and he negotiates back at 750 at seven. But that's, that's the way it works. So sometimes we never, never even get to know the seller because it's too risky, because we might not bond with them. But as long as you work through the broker. So now it's just the broker presenting our offer, our counter offer, then you'll do better. And also remember the broker has more power bonding wise than probably you do, because the broker is also seen as an advisor. So when right. I bond with the seller, I'm always on the other team, right? 
He may like me, but I'm on the other team. But the broker is on his team. So he'll say to the broker, what do you think? Is that a good price? Should I sign it? He doesn't ask the buyer that. So that's how you'd work it. Typically, you know, the, the brokers, they, I mean, like the worst thing you could do if you have a friendly broker who has a listing is demand to go to the seller. Because for all you know, you'll go into the seller and the seller hates you on, on site because that's how a lot of this works in the world of bonding. It's very magical. You know, people just like attributes of people based on stereotypes of things that have happened like in their childhood. And it screws you up. I'll give you an example. Like, I mean, I've seen, I don't, I don't go to his church, but I've seen Joel Osteen, you know, talk on TV. And what I found is most people think, find Joel Olstein reminds them of somebody that they liked in their childhood. Like to me, he reminds me of one of my, one of my goofy cousins out in Kansas. Oh, interesting. Right. But, but, mm-hmm. but there's a lot of, a lot of people out there, a lot of talk show people and stuff that have attributes that everyone just sort of likes a little. It's like Tom Cruise. People like Tom right. Cruise. Right. Why do they like Tom Cruise? Is he the best looking guy in America? No. Is he funny? No. So why is he so successful? It's because the average American likes Tom Cruise because he reminds them of something, someone they knew that they liked. And so the, the problem, one problem with bonding is sometimes you meet with the seller and they just don't like you. And there's no way you can really overcome that. So rather than open that mystery door of, hey, I wonder if you're going to like me or not, you're often better off just letting the broker do it because you already know they like the broker. Got it. That's a very interesting um, point of view because you always try to to make, you know, to connect with the seller. And sometimes I know that some investors see the broker as someone who is kind of in between you and the seller. But it's a very interesting point of view of, of seeing the broker as someone who's actually uh, part of, of the owner owner's team, but someone that the owner is actually trusts. So if you bond with the the broker, then you can bring them on your side. And then the, it kind of changes how um, the the seller sees you. So that's, that's a, a very interesting point of view. And Frank, I wanted to ask you, what would you tell your 20-year-old self if you could look back and, um, and kind of give yourself the best advice that you could? Oh, gosh. Uh, let's see. Advice to a 20-year-old self. My daughter's 21, so let's see. Advice oh. to my daughter or anyone who's 21. <laughs> um, well, first thing is, I, I would, and I often speak in terms of, of quotes, since it helps, helps affirm it's not my own crazy idea. You know, Warren Buffett once said that without passion, you have no energy, and without energy, you have nothing which means whatever you do, you got to be enthusiastic about it. Mm-hmm. So I think that, that that's the first thing is if you know, whether it's real estate or whatever the heck it is, if you're not really into it, don't even bother because the world's a competitive place and people who are not really into stuff never are successful because there's too many people who really are into it. So that, that's that, that would be advice. a big thing. Mm-hmm. Right. So I mean, I see so many people now who are going into careers they have no interest in because some career counselor at college or someone said, oh, yeah, you got to go into nursing. Nursing, that, now that's the big field, even though they don't want to be a nurse. And if you don't want to be a nurse, you're going to have problems because you're not going to be any good at it. 
And then every industry goes through periods of, of reduction, recessions. So you'll be the first person that this hospital would cut because they'd say, oh, well, you know, they're not really into their job. And so you, you just have to be really into what you do. Um, another thought would be that you, you have got to acknowledge, even on the front end, when you're a young person, that everything revolves around money. And you've got to be very prudent in budgeting everything. Because, you know, even, even while you're building your business, you have to pay the bills. Right. And so, you know, I, I noticed a lot of the best investors in our industry all had day jobs, typically, and then bought mobile home parks on the side. And then as it grew over time, that became a full-time job. Right. But, you know, right. it's not, I mean, if you, if you want, if you want to be a rock star, you don't just be a rock star, right? You're more like, Gene Simmons or someone or Elvis Costello and you have a real day job and then on weekends you are a rock star until you're a big enough rock star you can quit your day job. You know, a lot, a lot of people have a much better shot of success if they have, uh, have you know, multiple lines of income, whatever it may be, so they can keep trying longer because few people really make it big overnight. It's very rare. Most people grind away at That's it for right. five or ten years before... Mm -hmm. They get their break and you can't grind away at it for five or 10 years if they've evicted you and you're living out of your car. That's right. Is this how you started? Did you start with, uh, with your investing on the side? Well, no, let me, how I, how I started, which is just a terrible, terrible story. I must've been insane, but I, you know, I started my business when I was 21, right? I got, I got out of Stanford a year early and started my business initially as an experiment for a graduate school essay. And then I just kept doing it. So how I, how I pulled that off was I did a, a uh, I had all those credit cards you get when you're in college and I drew down all of them at one time. Wow. And that was, and I think I pulled out 60 grand. That was my initial capital to start my company. What's odd is my partner, Dave, did the same thing in his 20s and he drew down like 100 grand off his credit cards. I would never recommend that to anyone. That's an insanely risky thing, right? Insanely risky. but that that's what I did. And I paid myself nearly nothing. I, I paid myself a thousand a month for about a decade. Right. Wow. And so, yeah, I was really pushing the envelope more than the average person could possibly endure. And I'm not recommending that that's what most people do. Like I'm not recommending that, you know, people who are 21 years old typically are not the people who necessarily start a business because it's incredibly pressured and risky. So for a lot of people, you're way better off having a regular job and investing on the side until you've got things in place where you can cut loose of your day job. But mm -hmm. I, I went cold turkey, as did my partner Dave. So I was, I was a 21-year-old. I've actually never worked for anyone, as bizarre as that sounds. So I've never actually had a boss, paycheck, or anything. It's, all, it's just been me. That's amazing, though. Yeah, and, and, and amazing and scary and maybe insane in the modern world. But that's what I did. And it's also what my, what my partner Dave did. That's very interesting. Um, I, I graduated from MIT. So I see a lot of uh, undergrads that are actually starting their own company. And they started while they're in school. And then they somehow managed to raise money. They have um, they have access to a lot of uh, kind of startup shows and where they can showcase their company and raise capital from, from mm -hmm. local investors. So I think that ecosystem, that environment is pretty unique. 
But for the most part, I agree that 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 usually if you're if you just got out of college, everyone is is so um, excited about starting their quote unquote real life and starting to make some money. And but I do see you know on bigger pockets and and uh, in similar websites, people that are twenty or twenty one and and they say I want to get into real estate. I want to start. I don't know how to, and I'll I'll be happy to. Um, team up with an investor and see how I can add value. So I think doing that on the side while uh, having a steady job, because nobody's going to pay you a full-time uh, you know, salary right at, at the beginning. Um, so I, I think that's that's a very interesting um, advice. And I think it's incredible that you, you've never had a boss. That's, that's pretty, I mean... This is, uh, and I'm, I'm sm- all, all smiles here because for me, it took me a, a lot of, a, a lot of time uh, to be able to separate myself from a, a very cushy job, and it's not easy. But I think once you make that, once you make that move, you can go back. And with you, you don't even know a different um, reality, which is um, pretty insane. Yeah, I, I've never, ha- I've never had any kind of safe, structured lifestyle. Mm. So that's, that's, uh, that's. Not, not been a part of my experiences, so I've uh, never, never had that. Although at the same time, for many people, I'm not saying that what I did is actually what people should do. Like I would not recommend 20 year olds. I'll say, you know, screw the system. I'm just going to start my own thing. Because yeah. for every one that succeeds, there's hundreds that crash and burn. Right. Um, so right. the way I did it, I mean, anyone listening to this, I would not recommend you go draw down your credit cards and just you know, do t- t- take that one in a million shots. But I mean, probably the more sensible way to do it, I think in retrospect was I probably should have gotten a normal job and then built what I did over time. Right. Right. Um, so thank you, Frank, for, for your time and for sharing your, your story. And uh, I know you have many more fascinating stories. Um, and I just wanted to ask you one last question and it's where can people find you? Oh, gosh. Well, you can typically find me in my car driving across America looking at mobile home parks. <laughs> but if people want to reach me, the best place, if you go to the website, mhu.com, which stands for mobilehomeuniversity.com, um, you, you, you can access uh, Brandon, who's my partner's son, uh, because you know that, that's been Dave and my hobby now for about a decade. So like every, every, every night, while most Americans watch TV. I also watch TV, but I also watch TV and type uh, reports and newsletters and articles and things like that. And then I teach, uh, teach that class about the industry, you know, six or eight times a year. But that's, that's where you, the best way to find me is just go to mhu.com and you, you can't miss me. I'm, I'm all over that website. All right, great. Well, thank you again, Frank, for your time. It was great having you on a show and uh, I hope to keep in touch and uh, talk to you later. Great. Thanks for having me. Whoa, what a story. The lesson that I've learned from Frank's testimony is that you have to be creative when you try to build relationships, especially in real estate, and that building trust is crucial to be successful as an investor. That's all for today, guys. You can find the episode's show notes on iTunes and on my website, www.elliepearlman.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe to my show on iTunes. This way you can stay up to date with the podcast. And next week, we'll have a new and interesting episode about a syndicator who decided to switch to passive investing. 
He will share with us why he did it and how he vets syndicators after making this change. See you soon. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.